First John chapter 3. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. And ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. For his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. For this is the message that ye heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother. And wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil, and his brother's righteous. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso has this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And hereby we know that we are of the truth, and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart, and knoweth all things. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence toward God. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him, because we keep his commandments, and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, as he gave us commandment. And he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, and he in him. And hereby we know that he abideth in us by the Spirit which he hath given us. Are there sinners? here this morning? Any sinners? People who sin? Really? Well, it says here, whoever commits sin transgresses the law, and whoever abides in him sins not, and uh, neither has not seen him or known him, and he that commits sin is of the devil. Whoever is born of God doesn't commit sin. So, I thought I was going to preach to Christians this morning. But, I mean, it says here, if you're born of God, you don't sin, right? Maybe we should find a, another congregation. I, I don't know. I don't Obviously, I'm being facetious. What do these mean? It seems to clearly say that to be a Christian, you do not sin. And if you do sin, you're not a Christian. And some people have believed that's exactly 
what the meaning of that is. Well, we're going to be uh, looking into that today. Uh, we're uh, we're at we're up to verse four in our uh, expository sermon, or going through the book of First John. Uh, what John has done so far is uh, he's talked about uh, we have purity uh, from our hope in heaven, we have communion with Christ in glory at the day of his appearance, and now he's going to talk about sin. Uh, he says, sin is the transgression of the law. Okay, in verse 4, whosoever commits sin transgresses also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law, the breaking of the law. Lawlessness, rejecting God's law, and rejecting God's law is rejecting divine authority, because you're saying, I'll make up my own laws. I don't, I don't need this book. And that's rejecting God. Just as the serpent said to Eve, what happened? She said, you remember back in Genesis 3, she said, uh, uh, he says, what did God tell you? And he says, oh, you're not going to surely die uh, if you eat the fruit. A very interesting verse. He says, you shall be as God, knowing good and evil. Now, some Bibles translated gods, but that goes back to another argument. But what the serpent was saying is, if you commit this sin, your eyes will be opened, he says, remember? What does that mean? Well, it means that, it sounds like a good thing, you know, your eyes will be opened. No, not in this context. Your eyes will be opened knowing good and evil, and you shall be of God knowing good and evil. In other words, you will judge what's right and what's wrong for yourself, and you won't pay any attention to what God says. And isn't that what an awful lot of people do today? They don't, they don't care what the Ten Commandments says. They don't care what God says in the Bible. It's, you know, if it feels right, do it. You know, whatever, whatever is good. Whatever, whatever is the, I think is the right thing to do. But, you know, Adolf Hitler thought he was doing the right thing. He justified himself, and and mass murderers justify themselves. And all, you know, that's exactly comes right out of what Satan said, the serpent said would happen. Uh, and that's original sin, by the way. And that's, as I said, it's a spiritual uh, virus that's transmitted down. It's only by this restraint of God today, you know, that we're not killing each other. Some, obviously a lot of people are, but all of us would be if it weren't for God's restraint on us uh, because we are sinful people. Verse 5, I'm skipping a little bit ahead. Uh, verse 5, And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. So he came to take away our sins. What does that exactly mean? Well, I think most of us know exactly what that means, but let me summarize it. <coughs> Number one, he takes away the guilt of our sins, our guilt before God, not just our feelings when I say guilt, but our guilt before God, our uh, judicial guilt, if you will, uh, by the sacrifice of himself. You know, you may have heard this, and I, as, as all comparisons are, it's not perfect, uh, but I, I, I find it interesting, uh, the comparison, is that uh, our standing before God is like a judge who's calling the next case and a woman comes in and she's accused of all, all sorts of horrible things and uh, she's guilty, she's found guilty, and the judge realizes it's his own mother. And the only sentence he can impose is death, but he doesn't want to impose that sentence on his mother, so he gets down off the bench, takes his robes off, and says, I will take the sentence upon myself. 
And that's what Christ does for us. He takes the sentence upon ourselves, so we, upon ourselves, so we can never be condemned again. He came, therefore, to take away our sins, to take away the, the judicial guilt of them by his sacrifice, and he takes away our commission of, of our sins, our desire to sin by implanting a new nature in us in order to conform us to himself. I once read that those that expect to be with Christ in heaven should practice being with him on earth. Those that expect to be with Christ in heaven should practice being with him on earth. And if you ignore him, you don't ignore his word, you don't study your, your Bible, uh, what's going to happen in heaven? You may be saved, but uh, it's, uh, you're not exhibiting it in this life if you're, if you're not in love with his word. Remember what Jesus said in John 15, Abide in me, live, in other words, in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abides in the vine. No more can ye except ye abide in me. And what the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 1, For to me to live is Christ. To live is Christ. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Also in Scripture. Verse 6 says, Whosoever abides in him sins not. And we can also compare this to verse 8. He that commits sin is of the devil. In verse 9, Whosoever is born of God does not commit sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he's born of God. Well, there's the test to see if you're a real Christian. If you sin, you can't be a Christian. Actually, some people, as I say, have believed that and they've taught it. Um, there's a, a, the term is perfectionism. And there's, uh, oh, you may have heard of the higher life movement, the victorious life movement. Um, Charles Finney. Um, it's uh, cr Christian perfection. Is also known as perfect love, um, baptism of the Holy Spirit, the full Christian holiness, the holiness movement, the second blessing, the second work of grace, entire sanctification, uh, believing that the heart of a born-again or, or, or a saved Christian may attain a state of holiness in which believers are freed from not only their sins of this life, but from original sin and where there's a total love of God and others uh, inspired by put in you by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Benjamin uh, Warfield, who was a professor uh, at Princeton Seminary uh, back in the old days, in the 1800s, when it was still a good seminary, uh, faithful to the scripture, it's now abandoned that belief, uh, wrote a book called Perfectionism perfectionism. And it's all about why scripturally this idea that uh, of this, this uh, holiness idea that you can be perfect and not commit sin that's possible in this life uh, is wrong. Uh, in the preface to it, Samuel Craig, who's the owner of the Craig Press, uh, writes in his in his foreword Perfectionism was first given standing in the Protestant churches through the teaching of John Wesley, 
although he himself never claimed perfection. To support his position, he distinguished sharply between justification and sanctification, alleging they were obtained through separate acts of faith. Okay, what that means is there's, there's, there's two acts of faith. One justifies you before God and declares you sinless, and all got standard biblical Christianity, uh, that God, if you, you're a believer in Christ, he makes a judicial decision, you're, you're free of sin. Uh, or you're, excuse me, your sins will not be counted against you, just like the courtroom example I gave. Uh, and then there's sanctification, which is as we live in this life, we are living more and more the way God wills us to live, but we'll never live perfectly in this life. It'll be in the next life uh, that uh, we're perfected through Christ, Christ's righteousness. Uh, but he said there are two separate acts of faith. We, the Bible doesn't teach you two separate acts of faith, one for justification, one for sanctification. That you don't isn't a second blessing or a second coming of the Holy Spirit to you. Uh, so basically what that means, if that teaching is that there are two types of Christians. Those who are only justified and those who are justified and sanctified. The Bible gets no indication of this. Warfield, on the other hand, and this is from this uh, preface, holds that all Christians are justified, but all Christians are only more or less sanctified. We know that in our own life. There's some mature Christians, some baby Christians, uh, and we're all on, on that road. Uh, perfectionism is impossible, Dr. Warfield claimed, because it has an, uh, the idea is an inadequate notion of sin. It's impossible if you have a profound sense of your own sin. And the closer you are to God, the more sinful you realize you are. So how could you possibly believe in perfection? Perfectionism. The perfectionism of the higher life movement is a subjective rather than an objective perfectionism. At the most it saves from sinning but not from sin. That is from known sin but not from the corruption of man's heart. And this is because it ignores the fact that sin consists of any lack of conformity unto the law of God, as well as transgression of that law, as in, as, as in our pastoral prayer. Any lack of conformity to you know, things that we should have said, things that we should have done, things that we should have thought, is lack of conformity in addition to actually doing the bad things and thinking and saying the bad things. Okay. In fact, Wesley wrote a book called A Plain Account of Christian Perfection or another term for it is entire sanctification. Uh, and to be fair, John Wesley did not, did not claim per, to be perfect. Uh, he didn't use perfection to describe sinlessness. Uh, he said it's the state of choosing not to sin, so it's, it's not as extreme as some of these other movements were. But verse 6 and others here clearly say you aren't abiding in Christ if you ever sin, aren't they? Well, maybe not. Look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. Written by the same apostle. My little children, these things write unto you that ye sin not, and if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now go to verse 9. He that saith he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness even unto now. He that loves his brother abides in the light and there is no occasion of stumbling in him, etc. Did John forget? I mean, how could he write, if you sin, you have an advocate with the Father? Well, obviously you have to be a believer to have an advocate with Jesus Christ as your advocate. So he's talking to Christians, but he says, if you sin, 
And then the next chapter, he says, well, if you sin, you're not a Christian. Did he forget that he wrote that? No, we know that the Holy Spirit guided John's stomach. This isn't just, you know, the ravings of somebody. John's actually, in verse 6, in chapter 3, whosoever abides in him sins not. Sins not. He's using, whoever sins has not seen him. He's using the present tense of the word. He's not. He's telling us by the use of the present tense that we can't. He's not teaching we can be sinless. He's teaching that although the believers will sin, lawlessness will not define their lives. There's a big difference. Lawlessness will not define our lives. Jesus came to take away sins in verse five, both its guilt and finally its presence by the death and resurrection. But this latter work of sanctification, we call it, is finished when we go to heaven and not beforehand. In verse 2, John says, We're sons of God, and it doesn't yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, or it will appear to us when we die, he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So to sin here uh, is the same as to commit sin. To commit sin is to practice sin, but he that abides in Christ continues not in the practice of sin doesn't mean that he ever commits a sin. Because then nobody would be a Christian. Nobody can go to heaven. That's no commentator who has his head on straight believes that that's what it's saying because it conflicts with so much more in Scripture. give you just one of many examples. Let's turn to Romans chapter 7. Romans 7 beginning in verse 14. This is the Apostle Paul. Okay? The Apostle Paul. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do I allow not, for what I would that I do not, but what I hate that I do. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. You know, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. That's basically where that comes from. For the good that I would I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. He's Apostle Paul here. Now if I do that which I, what I would not, it's no more I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find in a law that when I would do good, evil is present within me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man in my heart. Yes, I love God. I want to do everything that he wants me to do. But I see another law in my members, in my body, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members, in my body. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Of course, later on he tells us who, of course, we know. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's your answer. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. That describes everyone's. 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 Matthew Henry said, Practical renunciation of sin is the great evidence of spiritual union with, continuance in, and saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me read that to you. Practical renunciation of sin. Hatred of sin. I don't want to sin anymore. I hate it when I sin. And when I fall down, I pray to God to 
put me back on, on the right track and give me strength never to sin again. And that's what practical renunciation of sin, Matthew Henry said, is the great evidence of spiritual union with, continuance in, and saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So why did John, speaking through the Holy Spirit in 1 John, express it this way, to make it look like to be a Christian you never sinned? Maybe one reason is this, and I, this is kind of off the wall maybe, but I, I thought about that. Unregenerate people, unsaved people, can't do anything to please God. Oh, sure they can. Really? Well, they don't believe the gospel. They laugh at the idea that Jesus Christ is divine, or the Son of God, or God, or any manifestation of that that he's the second person of the triune God. They trample him and his commandments under their feet. They mock him. They mock the Holy Spirit. They mock the Father. They sin willfully. They repress their conscience by sinning more. They say to God the Father, away with your son's bloody sacrifice, the death of your only beloved son. We don't want any part of him or any part of you. So God gives them what they want, by the way. They get to stand before the judgment seat all alone with no attribute. No Savior. See, Christ says to Christians at the judgment seat, this one is mine. His sins are forgiven because I took them upon myself on the cross and paid the full penalty for them. Elsewhere in Scripture it says, First John, I believe that Christ is our advocate. Well, advocate in my sermon a few weeks ago, think of a courtroom advocate. A lawyer is called an advocate. Your defense attorney is your advocate. And he gets up there and he comes up with all the arguments as to why you shouldn't be found guilty. Well, that's what Christ does. But his argument is, I paid the penalty. You can't condemn this one. I paid the penalty. And without Christ as, as your Savior, you're going to live in the agony and the lake of fire forever. And a lot of people don't believe that. But I'm afraid they'll find out. So do you think God is pleased with these people who don't who reject his son, who spit in his face because they helped a little old lady across the street? Or they gave to some charity to really what the reason they, they do good you know why they do good things? To soothe their conscience for all their sins. That's why. Do you think anything they can do will please God? So but on the other hand, the good works of believers are pleasing to God. Not that they save you. Good works come after salvation, not before. There's nothing we can do. There's no brownie points that we can chalk up and God will say, well, you got them all. you got enough to get into heaven now. You know, there's not you know, the, the comfort in points and you get a free room after staying so many times. John Calvin writes in his commentary upon these verses, Christians, quote, are designated according to the prevailing principle that as they are said to be righteous, and to live righteously because they sincerely aspire to righteousness. And unbelievers don't aspire to righteousness. Now remember, good works don't save. Don't save you. Don't do good works because you think you get favor with God. You do good works because you love God and you want to please Him. And He's happy when you do what He wants you to do. And you love your Father. And you want to please your Father. If you, if you had a good role model as a father... I hope you did, or do. Do you do the things he wants because he's going to give you something for it? You know, oh, I, you know, I want that latest electronic thing, or I want some money, or I want this. 
Do you, do you do that? Is that why? Is that your motivation? Or do you do it because maybe it is sometimes? But do you do it basically because you love them and you want to please them and make them happy? John says in uh, verse 24 in the third chapter, jump, again jumping ahead, and he that keeps his commandments dwells in him, and he in him. In other words, he he that keeps his commandments, you if you keep his commandments. The Holy Spirit will dwell in you, and uh, you will dwell in the Holy Spirit, him or Christ, Christ's Spirit, and he will dwell in you. And hereby we know that we abide uh, in, uh, in us by the Spirit, that he abides in us by the Spirit which he has given us. His, elsewhere in Scripture says, his Spirit testifies to our spirit that we are the children of God. And you know that you're a child of God when he's put the gift of faith in you, which is what it is. When John writes that Christians do not and cannot sin, he contrasts that with unbelievers who are in a perpetual 24-7 state of sin. Nothing they can do to please God if they don't believe in him. They don't believe in his son. The foundation of their sin is that they don't have saving faith in Christ. So all these other sins that come off, that comes off the foundation of their sin. Just like talking to somebody recently and they said, well, what do you do when somebody says that um, uh, you know, they believe in abortion? You know, and and how do you how do you convince them that abortion is wrong? And I, I thought for a minute. I said, somebody who doesn't believe in abortion or believes in gay marriage or whatever the whatever the issue might be, that's not the issue. The issue is their relationship with Jesus Christ. If they have a right relationship with Christ, then all those other issues will take care of themselves. So you don't argue with them about you know whether it's a, when it's a baby and all that kind of stuff. The issue is their relationship with Christ and present the gospel to them. And then everything else will be taken care of if they're given the gift of faith. So the foundation of unbelievers' sin is that they don't have saving faith in Christ. You know, there's only one unforgivable sin by its very nature. And people are like, what's the unforgivable sin? Is it murder? Is it adultery? No. There's only one unforgivable sin. That's not believing in Jesus Christ as your Savior. Because you can't be saved without believing in Christ. So therefore, it's the unforgivable sin. All right? So they don't have saving faith in Christ. Rather, from Romans 1.32, who, knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. On the other hand, those who have been given the gift of saving faith have their foundation in Christ's righteousness. So contrast, their foundation is their unbelief in Christ. Foundation of Christians, believers, is their foundation in Christ's righteousness. Okay. Not even their belief in Christ, but the foundation is Christ's righteousness. Uh, in Galatians it says over and over again, we are saved by the faith of Christ. Now, some versions of the translate that in, but that's incorrect. We're, we're saved by Christ's faith, not our own faith, primarily, first and primarily. Uh, you, you are, uh, we are saved by grace uh, through faith, not, not of yourselves, as a gift of God, not of works, let's say that's your boast. Okay. So those who have been given the gift of faith have their foundation in Christ's righteousness, not in unbelief. So they don't perpetually sin. They repent when they, Christians, displease God, and we pray for strength to overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we certainly don't take pleasure in sinning constantly, nor do we love it, as it says, and I just read from Romans, when others sin. And it says they take pleasure in them that, that commit sin. We don't take pleasure in people committing sin. But the unregenerate do all that kind of thing. 
John says in verse 6, and uh, whosoever abides in him sins not. In verse 8, he commits commit sin of the devil. Verse 9, whosoever is born of God does not commit sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he's born of God. In other passages, he's referring to the ungenerate who commit sin, present tense meaning constantly breaking God's commandment, unbelief in Christ, the foundation. And the key verse to understand that is John, 1 John 3.23. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. Unbelievers commit sin constantly because they don't believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and therefore do not love the brethren. They are of the devil, verse 8 says. But the elect, once they are converted, never have a moment that they become unbelievers and reject the body of Christ. Yes, you can have doubts, especially as a, as a baby Christian. Sometimes doubts creep in. You know, there is such a thing as, as the devil whispering in your ear. Sometimes, you, and we all have spiritual valleys, even the most mature believers go through spiritual periods of, of depression. But a truly regenerate person never rejects belief in Christ. If she or she does, it means they were never saved to begin with. They made a false profession of faith. So, in other parts of the Bible, sinners and saints are distinguished. Okay. Those saints are sinners, right? So, it's the same thing going on here. To commit sin is to practice it as unbelievers do. And they are distinguished from saints who, uh, who do not live under the power and dominion of sin. But he who does so is of the devil. His sinful nature, as Matthew Henry says on this, his sinful nature is inspired by and agreeable and pleasing to the devil, and he belongs to the party and interest and kingdom of the devil. So, finishing up. The Son of God came into our world, was manifested in the flesh, that he might conquer the devil, dissolve his works, he will loosen sin, dissolve it more and more until he's destroyed it, until he's put all everything under his feet. So we are not to serve or indulge what the Son of God came to destroy. We are not to continue in sin. Yes, we sin, but we repent of our sin. We won't be perfectly holy until we're in heaven, but we can still live righteously while on earth. While our good deeds never merit our correct standing before God, He's pleased when we obey Him. And He calls us righteous when we do His will, actually. R.C. Sproul wrote, The approval that God gives to us according to our obedience is not the same as the Father's judicial declaration of righteousness based on, perfect, on the perfect holy obedience of Jesus. We must always make this distinction. God approves us, but he doesn't save us for the good things we do. And that's always an important distinction. Martin Luther wrote that the same time we are justified, we are also sinners. Until we are glorified, we will struggle with sin, but we can't let this knowledge make us think we can have no victory over sin because we have a Savior who sent his Spirit to enable us to resist all the temptations of the flesh. Remember, Practical renunciation of sin is the great evidence of spiritual union with, continuance in, and saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll finish with 
the verse from Hosea 10:12, sow to yourselves in righteousness, reap in mercy, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord till he come and rain righteousness upon you. Amen. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, we indeed pray for righteousness, the righteousness that is in Christ. Lord, if there are any in the sound of my voice that uh, has not been converted, Father, Lord, thou knowest uh, thy sheep, and thy sheep hear thy voice. Convert them, Father. Strengthen us who have been converted, Lord. Banish our doubts. I prayed a little earlier that great verse, Lord, I, the man who said to Christ, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. Father, we can all relate to that and make that our prayer as well. Father, we continue in our prayers to for sanctification by thy spirit, the mortification of sin dwelling in us. Father, we pray for the propagation of the gospel and the kingdom of Christ to all nations. We pray for the strength and the protection of those in persecuted nations around persecuted church around the world, Father. Uh, be with them, strengthen them, let them know of thy presence and, and and protection, Lord. Father, we, we thank Thee. We pray for this country, Father, that, uh, Lord, we're being judged. Father, we ask that Thou would turn us, turn us to Thee. Let our legislators consult Thy word before writing any laws. Father, that, uh, that Jesus Christ be the ruler not only of our hearts, but of our of our families and of our nation as well. Turn us from our wicked ways, Father. Have mercy upon us. Father, we ask that we be knit together as families in daily worship, daily devotions, daily Bible reading, both personally and, and corporately with each other, Father, that we may raise our children and, and ourselves as well, Father, in, the, in teaching and knowing thy word better and better. Put thy word in our hearts, Father. Put those in our path this week that need to hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, Father. And give us the scripture from memory if we, and let us remember to bring a Bible as well. But uh, put those in our path that need to hear the good news, Father, and open their ears to it. And as we uh, fellowship and uh, go to our homes today, let us remember that this is the Lord's day. In six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day belongs to thee, Father. That's why it's called the Lord's Day and not our day. So, Father, let us remember that and honor it as we should. For it is in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ, that we pray it again this morning.